I had this feeling when we were with this oak tree, you know, this oak tree who was certainly old enough to have been tended to and had interactions with tribal people, with Esalen folks, and this feeling from the oak tree of like, where have you been? There was like a quality of sadness. There was a quality of almost like a scolding quality to it as well. It wasn't just like, I'm so happy to see you. There was a heaviness to it. It's like, where have you been? That may have been in my imagination. That may have been dialogue. I don't know. I don't feel particularly attached to it being one way or the other. It has meaning for me regardless of what it actually was. Nested in that meaning is this idea of like, maybe these other beings miss us too. Not because we're super special or great, but just because we're like, we're just one member of the family that's been missing for a long time. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, my guests are Noel Viator and Fletcher Tucker, co-founders of Wild Tender, a group that offers immersive wilderness programs that cultivate intimacy with the natural world, connect with wisdom traditions, and nurture human wholeness. In this particular moment of history that we find ourselves in, I feel like there is a call to reawaken our inherent belonging to the earth and to cultivate a relationship with land that is based on deep listening and coexistence. Wild Tender answers that call. Today, in this conversation, Noel and Fletcher guide us through their philosophy, which is rooted in the ancient paths of kin-centric animism, embodied awareness, and the deep, interconnected wisdom of living beings. We've been trying to do an interview for probably two, three years or something like that, and I want to recognize our deep connection and my respect for the work that both of you do and the way that you've kind of dedicated your working lives and lives outside of work to the work that you do. You're very purpose-driven people, and so I have um, a great deal of appreciation for both of you and the artistic way mm-hmm. that you live your lives and, uh, and the purpose-driven way that you, that you live your lives. Thanks, Sam. Yeah, I mean, we yeah, we go way back, you know, working in the farm and garden together and being in the gestalt process and, you know, now in the present raising daughters in Big Sur who are the same age and kind of going through that at the same time. So it's all been very rich and fertile, ongoing process of knowing each other. Mm. Would you bring me into your Esalen origin story? Bring me into what brought you here and how you engaged with Esalen when you were first here. Well, like... A lot of people, I came here in a time of personal seeking and transition. Not a super unusual story of just kind of jumping into a young professional, somewhat corporate life in a city and not feeling very connected with that work or like I was in the right alignment with my life or my purpose. So in my mid-20s, I kind of stumbled upon Esalen Institute and particularly the farming garden. I just felt so drawn to the idea of getting to be in a place of just being outdoors all day and putting my hands in the dirt and learning something really tactile, like how to grow food. Esalen had this, you know, really amazing nine-month apprenticeship that I kind of convinced them to let me in, even though I had no practical experience or qualifications, but I, I kind of sold them on a story that, you know, I would take it back to the corporate world, my hands-on knowledge, and, you know, apply it in some grandiose way. 
Yeah, I found myself here in January of 2010, which was, we now have become more acquainted with the the term atmospheric rivers in California, like these torrential storms. But I feel like they've always happened in Big Sur, and that winter was so stormy and tumultuous, Mm. and it was kind of unexpected landing here, just sort of expecting that I would have this lovely experience of gardening and not having much expectation on top of that. And yeah, kind of arriving into this more like psycho-spiritually dynamic Mm. terrain. Mm. And I always, yeah, I quip that I came for the farming and stayed for the gestalt, but what I didn't know would be a part of the experience were these weekly gestalt process meetings with every work department at the Esalen Institute where all of the crew members or team members would sit together with a gestalt facilitator and share authentically how they or how we were doing, you know, in our hearts and our spirits and our day-to-day grievances. We started talking about that work as relational agriculture. There was this really deliberate focus on connecting people, not only with the land, with themselves, but also with each other, like that it was really a communitarian practice. It was an intense period for me of self-discovery and Mm. challenging in a lot of ways. The most unexpected and radical aspect of my farming garden time was getting to be in these weekly gestalt sessions with the gestalt facilitator. And in my case, it was mostly Dorothy Charles, who is a student of the co-founder Dick Price and really carries his lineage of gestalt practice. For me, like sitting in a room of people and hearing from them about their authentic experience, about what what is present for them, was actually as fascinating as it was getting to like dive into my own personal stuff. Yeah, I I, I was in some of those sessions because I was a work scholar at the time where you were Mm. a farm and garden apprentice and I, I too was nurtured so much by those circles that were something that was, I guess, new to me. I had been in circles before, but there was something about the way that it was facilitated by Dorothy Mm. that led me to feel, I remember there was something that I was so ashamed of Mm. revealing about myself. And Dorothy made me look around at the Mm. different people who were looking at me. Mm -hmm. And she was like, well, what do you see in their eyes? And I was just, I was kind of moved to tears by understanding that they were going to accept me no matter what I said almost you know and that yeah. was this feeling of being accepted by the land here too and by the mm. the greater environment here so I I understand I haven't not heard this term relational agriculture but I kind of understand what you're getting at mm-hmm. with with that yeah I think that that is so important just yeah, kind of that healing of being seen and being held in compassionate awareness by other people can be so reparative to like these early stories or kind of wounded parts of ourselves that believe that that we should be ashamed or that we have something to hide or you know that people won't love us or you know appreciate us or whatever it is. We co-led a program with Dorothy earlier this summer called Wild Presence relational gestalt practice in the natural world and someone asked her like you know this is really amazing being in a group together but like how is it working one-on-one and and she was like it's good I I like working one-on-one but being together in a group like many awarenesses are more powerful than one awareness and there's something that kind of can collectively happen 
in this group formation, especially when people are showing up with respect and in sort of an intention to be compassionate or withhold judgment and just be kind with each other. What Noelle was just saying really brought something up for me of talking about the, that idea of like the being witnessed and held and this, capa- this quality of many awarenesses being mm-hmm. greater than the sum of its parts, which is what Gestalt means, right? And for us in our work, then, then that field of relationship, that field of relationality extends beyond that circle of human contact into these concentric circles of more than human contact. So, and you've both talked about this already. You've touched on this idea of the, that um, the land was also nourishing and holding and bearing witness. The land was providing you with, well, the land was providing. Our work with Wild Tender is absolutely related and uh, informed by this relational agriculture and gestalt traditions that come out of the Aslan Institute in that it's fundamentally relational work. It's work about building and cultivating and understanding one's relationship with oneself, with one's human community, and with a a more than human community. Or if you'd like, you could say like ecological self would be another, another way of saying it. Fletcher, before we jump into bigger ideas, tell me about how you arrived at Esalen. Yeah, I mean, I really joyfully and and um, easily just uh, kind of slid in on Noel's coattails to get down here to the Esalen Institute. I remember you, you long hair, blonde, <laughs> guitar playing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, happy, I, joyous. It's always like the boyfriends and girlfriends and partners <laughs> who are like super joyous. They're not doing much work and they're down exactly, at the exactly, <laughs> exactly. I don't know if the term still exists here, but the 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 absolute golden ring of of Esalen Institute participation was spacemate, which is what why how I was defined. But yeah, I was you know I was trying. I was um, eking out a lev- livelihood as itinerant musician living in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. and Noel decided to um, to make this big transition down here, and and I was fortunate enough to six months later just follow suit and come down, start working in the in the farm and garden, begin my own apprenticeship there, and really, really rapidly there was just for me every day this ever deepening sense of relatedness connection kinship and um devotion to the this land the land itself by you know waking up early in the morning and having my hand in this hands in the soil all day and in the water washing the lettuce and the sinks you know the preparing the food to be eaten taking that food and water into my own body from the land literally building myself rebuilding myself from this place you know in a in a very concrete way the the food and the water that we're growing in and collecting and so that devotion and affinity to this local patch of earth naturally started to expand out into this greater landscape of Esalen tribal land that we now call Big Sur that is you know represents this tremendously ecologically diverse and exquisitely beautiful and, you know, from my perspective, numinously charged wilderness, much of it intersected and woven through with these these networks of trails that extend far and wide across the backcountry into these incredibly 
unusual ecological niches and beautiful terrains. And so, yeah, most weekends where we weren't farming, we were hiking and we were either, you know, spending the day out on a trail or many days journeying through this wilderness, you know, mostly just with the intention of just getting to know the place and bearing witness, just beholding the place. Mm. Yeah, so that work, you know, became, you know, that could very well just be a a hobby for someone, (laughs) of course, and that's a beautiful, wonderful thing to be celebrated. But for whatever reason, my spirit was called into service, uh, into this, um, into this relationship and this way of relating. And it became clear to me that that forming these deep relationships, finding ways of um, connecting, building relationship, and then eventually finding ways of helping other people connect and form meaningful, long-lasting, embodied relationships with other than human beings, with landscape, and in particular this place, this specific place, Big Sur, which has taught me and nourished me and brought me so much that that became a deep, abiding orientation for my life. I think this is a common story for everyone who teaches, for lack of a better word. It's like eventually somebody's going to show up and want to do what you're doing or learn from what you're doing. And that just started to happen naturally. Different people hearing stories about like, oh, wow, like you hiked from the coast to Tassajara. Like, how did you do that? What was that like? You know, an initial kind of fascination or infatuation with the actual sort of um, maybe like the, the the most like sort of surface level of the experience, like just what we were actually doing with our bodies. And then once we started to do these things with our bodies, take people out into the wild and introduce them to the practices we've developed and our ways of relating that we've uncovered and rediscovered and encountered then that the role as guide and as teacher and facilitator just yet deepens over over time talk about the worldview that you espouse with Wild Tender. I'd love to begin with this notion of kin-centric animism. What is this and how does it shape your work? In essence, what we're, what those words point to is just an acknowledgement of the fundamental aliveness and awareness that proliferates the cosmos, you know, that is like this fundamental tissue of reality. It's the acknowledgement that this world is full of beings, persons even, some of whom are human, some of whom are not. That's how Graham Harvey defines animism, is this perspective that the world is full of persons, only some of whom are human, mm. right? And I think what's important about that idea is that if you, if you actually believe that, if you actually act from that perspective, it's going to affect every action you make throughout your life. And from my perspective, it's going to deeply enrich reality because we're talking about relationships we're talking about relationality i can't have a meaningful relationship with a landscape or with a place or with a world that's just full of a bunch of dead lifeless stuff right but i can have deep meaningful reciprocal relationship with other beings other human beings and other non-human or other than human beings what would be an example of having a relationship with like a non-human being 
again, it begins with regard, right? But I mean, there are people listening right now who have relationships already with non-human beings, like their cat or their dog or, or parakeet or, you know, and then there's, if you examine you, that field a little more closely, maybe there's a houseplant, you know, maybe you have a garden, you know, maybe you have a tree that you visit in the park that's two blocks away from your house. Mm-hmm. And you don't know why, but you go there and you, you know, whenever you walk in the park, you, you put your hand on the tree lovingly, even like a caress, like the way you would greet your auntie or grandmother. And this is probably already a, a component of daily life. And the reason for that, I believe, is that this is like uh, the foundational way of relating of our, our species mm. and that this modern overlay is really new. This, this modern overlay that, you know, is this highly mechanistic materialistic worldview that, that, that in fact we're just isolated and alone in this mm. world. Would the idea be that this is something that kind of came into being around the industrial revolution? You know, different people place these ideas at different time periods, and I think it's important to acknowledge that neither of us are historians. Honestly, the thing that makes the most sense to me is is that the divide actually is is about certain Greek philosophers and this initial separation that some ancient Greek people made of this idea of separating matter and spirit, this mm-hmm. idea that there's like a physical stuff and then there's spirit stuff. And slowly that idea of there being physical stuff and there being spirits material became more and more and more isolated to human beings. And it's like, we, here we are human beings with souls and then everything else is just sort of Mm. um, material, Mm. right? But of course, that's not where ancient Greeks started. You know, they, they had like this beautiful way of relating as kin to other than human subjectivities to the land and the beings of the land. And then these like, you know, spirit beings seen, seldom seen, unseen, you know, dryads and naiads and et cetera, et cetera. And there's this stories, there's stories from that time period of um, this new philosophy taking hold and actual written accounts of people saying, uh, like, we're, we're not able to make contact with these naiads, these water spirits anymore. Or like these ceremonies that we've been performing at these holy wells don't appear to be functioning anymore. So this, this like overlay of this different way of perceiving and relating to the world actually working as an erosive and erasive force for this other older, uh, more fundamental animistic or kin-centric or um, pan-psychic or however, there are lots of different words, way of relating back to the other than human, the more than human. You know, there's stories from my own ancestral lineage, which is primarily in Scandinavia. There's the same stories uh, or similar stories of folks around the 12th and 11th century when Christianity was was starting to creep in, in a hegemonic way up through Scandinavia and people talking about encountering like villagers in remote villages, encountering fairies and gnomes and trolls with carts leaving the countryside. And because they said, oh, this is it's the church bells are making this racket and the people aren't leaving offerings for us anymore. And there's, um, so we're, we're, we're out of here. We're going to, they, for, for funnily enough, they'd always say they're going to Norway. I'm going to Norway. I'm just going to go move to Norway where there were less people. You know, these stories, which you can interpret 
as like directly or mythopoetically as you would like. To me, it doesn't really matter. But they're, they're stories about subjectivity being wrung out of the world or being pushed out of the world and objectivity regard of the world as objects rather than as a community of subjects yeah. being forced into every corner of, of human culture and awareness. Yes. And so our work is, you know, with Wild Tender is an attempt to create an attempt to offer people an embodied experience of relating back to the world reciprocally and concentrically, animistically, if you will, an opportunity for people in in a living embodied way to cultivate relationships, reciprocal relationships, to find meaning, to restore ancient bonds of connection and relationality. Yeah. Yeah, and I just want to add that I think when we're talking about these concepts it's really important to acknowledge and and honor that the strongest kind of thought leadership intending to these concepts now and through the deep past has happened with indigenous people and some of the even for us personally like really formative inspiring ideas have come from writers and thinkers who are indigenous and are yeah modeling ways of tending to the land and relating to the land in a deeply reciprocal and yeah familial manner. So the name of our project, Wild Tender, where that comes from is around the same time that we were farming at Esalen and hiking the backcountry, we encountered the book Tending the Wild by M. Kant Anderson, which really kind of recasts the story of, of California. I would say in brief when settlers like John Muir came here, they saw the wilderness and they thought, wow, this is this untouched wilderness. It's so pristine and we know what industrial forces can do. Let's protect it and let's get people off of it, including indigenous people. And basically the book Tending the Wild unpacks just what a huge miscalculation and misperception that was that in reality, California and all the lands of Turtle Island have basically been like a garden. So, you know, they've been they've been really tended and managed in thoughtful ways um, and through really time tested um, strategies like fire management. So for us, it was just kind of this big aha moment of, wow, there's a different there could be a different way of relating to nature and Mm -hmm the natural world and and places and how we steward them. So it's kind of an aspirational concept because we aren't, you know, we're not teaching people about like wildlife wildlife rehabilitation or specific ways of reforesting lands or even fire ecology, right? Really, you know, we'll we'll touch on that sometimes um, abstractly or philosophically, but, you know, where our work is more situated in the in kind of the beginning of the journey, which is just about trying to shift consciousness and shift perception and our yeah our, our worldview. And our hope is always that people will kind of come through the process of waking up and trying on a different way of relating and experiencing the natural world or the wilderness 
and that they will then feel deeply inspired or called to care for the places that they love and call home. So just building on a little bit on what Noel said about just honoring and acknowledging the indigenous thought leadership around the kinship worldview, even just the term that we were using, the kincentric, that's, that's a term that was coined by Enrique Salmon, who's a, um, he's a professor in the Bay Area of Native American studies, and he's um, a Rara Murray uh, descendant. And so, yeah, he's done this beautiful work of cataloging and presenting all these plant-to-human, human-to-plant kinship relationships of Native people across Turtle Island, published a beautiful book about that. Yeah, and then some other folks, uh, Tyson Yonkpura, is, uh, who uh, wrote the book Sand Talk, a really incredible thinker in this field, very precise, and I think like, yeah, almost, I have kind of almost like a, like mystically gifted, I think, in his ability through words to actually like disrupt and challenge like dominant worldview, mm. inherited cultural bias and things like that. Really interesting, beautiful writer and beautiful book and then uh, i heard a great interview with tyson on the show for the wild oh yeah by, mm-hmm. hosted by yana young and uh-huh. actually i might be wrong but i think feel like your music was featured on that show oh it might have times. been on that one maybe on that show but it might have been definitely on that, on that podcast oh yeah yeah i do give i have given them music to use yeah yeah which i'm honored to have woven into that yeah yeah yana young's wonderful i've had her as a guest on the show She's cool yeah yeah and then if, and then robin wall kimmerer is like uh, has been lauded and can, needs to continue to be lauded for her really like generous openness and and clarity through which she she expresses these ideas of kinship and offers them you know to a really wide audience and mm. i think she's we we just have enormous like uh, gratitude for for how far and wide her thoughts and messages have spread she she wrote uh, braiding sweetgrass of course and she's um she is a botanist and gardener and um, member of the uh, potawatomi nation mm-hmm. yeah i would just like to add one thought regarding the um what you were saying noel about wild tender and the name and where it's coming from thinking about the dominant worldview and these sort of unobserved ways of regarding the world and ourselves and our relationship with the world and it feels true to me that a lot of people maybe most people kind of inherit these two seemingly disparate mythologies or false mythologies from my perspective of um about like what it means to be a human being and they they seem disparate but they're actually from my perspective totally related and this there's either this like exaltation of the of the human as either being like uh, through divine provenance or mechanistic materialistic brain powered superiority of this being like destined for dominion over the earth or this idea of human beings as essentially functioning more like a virus and just being like this grotesque outcast destined to be destructive and the world would be better off without us right mm-hmm. and they seem separate but really they both are about human exceptionalism and isolation, mm. right? And so, and the end result is 
thinking of ourselves in either of those ways is extreme existential isolation and loneliness mm. and just separateness from all that is, yeah. right? And yet, <laughs> you know, this model that's really well showcased in M. Ket Anderson's work of tending the wild and, and this idea of wild tending and present throughout human culture once you dig down to the level of a land-connected people is that there's this other way of being which is about reciprocal relationship and from that emerges human innate human capacity to actually be beneficial co-inhabitants of landscape to participate with other than human beings in peaceful and collaborative ways for the benefit of all types of beings mm. and this is still existing in the world today and and shown and illustrated and proven with the reality that like land connected people indigenous folks who have who continue to practice within their like um, traditions outside of modernity those those isolated places which unfortunately are very few and far between are the places on the planet that have the greatest biodiversity they are the places that have the most diversity of life and also sustainability of life and so it's it's not the places where people have been removed from landscape or have chosen to separate themselves from place. The those places actually very quickly, relatively quickly, become simplified in terms of their diversity. So human beings can actually be these beneficial co-inhabitants, mm -hmm. um, and and we have been, and may we be again. You have, know, that's have our we been hope. though? <laughs> well, we have been historically. Is there evidence to show that we were not just a bunch of warring factions who were happy to enslave one another? Um, I mean, yes, I, I, there is evidence. I mean, and I, I think a really important, I mean, if we just ground it where we actually are, you know, we can talk about here in Big Sur, like the, the, the deep culture of this place is that is that are the Aslan, that's mm. the Aslan tribe. Yeah. And, and so we're talking about at least 9,000 years of like continuous sustainable inhabitation. Mm. And it's, I think it's important not to, um, not to uh, over romanticize our deeper time ancestors. Mm. It's important not to over, it's important not to over romanticize in indigenous cultures or land-based cultures or place-based cultures, because that's actually another form of othering, mm. you know, right. and people are people and people do peopley things, you know, and, Historically, people don't behave perfectly to one another and they or to the place. But there is a, I believe, a story, a deeper story of a greater balance, a greater harmony, a greater reciprocity mm. that is lost when we become so fixated on the shorter term stories of modernity, which is what we're, it's reasonable. It's what we're swimming in. It's mm. the Anthropocene. It might just be useful to define that term. The Anthropocene, yeah. Eras or epochs, planetary eras or epochs have been defined in geologic terms like the Pleistocene and these, uh, these large natural shifts and events that change climate, that change the where plants are growing, uh, their geological events sometimes, things like that. More recently, people have been referring to this age that we're living through as the Anthropocene, in order to shed light on the fact and the reality that our human actions and human culture are actually the largest driving engine of, of change on a planetary level. So pointing back to human beings mm. as, you know, in particular causing major shifts in climate, but, you know, biodiversity, 
and and um, even just the surface of the earth, the reality that so much of the earth is now covered in concrete, mm. right? Literally changing the surface of the earth. Um, so yeah, Anthropocene, referring to that, this modern era that we are living through. And I mean, when I say modern era, I'm saying I'm talking about like the last two to three thousand years. That's mm. what feels okay. true to me. But then there's another, you know, depending on who you talk to, 300,000 years or so of human history before that, where we weren't perfect by any means, but, uh, but we also weren't driving at 700 miles an hour, mm-hmm. 700 miles per hour towards a cliff of a mass extinction and, yeah, the termination of our own species as well, yeah. right? So, I mean, 300,000 years, that's a pretty good run. Like, that's pretty, that's, that's some, I mean, that sounds like, pretty good sustainability to me you know what i mean i want to tell you about wild tender and esalen's partner program called wild pilgrimage a backpacking journey to esalen happening april 29th to may 5th 2024 this is a four-day highly intentional guided backpacking trip through big sur wilderness which concludes at esalen for a weekend of integration rejuvenation and further exploration Folks in this one-of-a-kind workshop will embody a contemporary form of pilgrimage, traveling as reverent guests through a biodiverse and sacred wilderness, historic Esalen tribal territory. Inspired by Esalen Institute's co-founder Dick Price, who found healing and transformation wandering the Big Sur wild, participants will engage in gestalt practices from the Esalen lineage, including group check-ins to help connect with themselves, each other, and the land. As you hike and camp, you'll receive what the landscape reveals, encounter philosophies and poetry of the wild, and learn foundational wilderness ethics and backpacking skills. Wild Pilgrimage will be facilitated by Wild Tender co-founder Fletcher Tucker, Esalen workshop leader, longtime student of Gestalt, and current guest on this podcast, as well as Emily Linders, nature-based psychotherapist and former Zen monk. This is the fifth year Wild Pilgrims will make their way through the backcountry to Esalen. It is a truly immersive and transformative experience centered in pan-ancestral traditions of kinship and Esalen's own gestalt tradition. It happens but once a year, so if you're feeling the call, I highly recommend signing up at wildtender.com. Once again, those dates are April 29th to May 5th, 2024. Read more about it and register at wildtender.com. I mean, we don't espouse like trying to like reset the clock and going back to being Stone Age people. Right. But we are interested in learning from our deeper time ancestors and acknowledging that there's there's wisdom back there that we've just thrown out, mm. you know, and that we can hopefully incorporate into, you know, some a more balanced presentation of ourselves in the present and future moment. We're focused right now in the way that we're talking about those outcomes and or, or like the way that maybe some of these things could affect change in the world and things like that. And that's really meaningful and important. But for me, there's also this deeper kind of calling or, or belief in that, like um, by cultivating reciprocal relationships with the more than human world, with landscape, with other than human beings, I deepen who I am and I become who I actually am, right? Yes. And so regardless of outcome, regardless of our ability or inability to avoid catastrophe, in this time, in this incarnation, I get to be who I actually am. 
I get to feel the the joy of unraveling and dismantling and doing away with some of that isolation and that pain. And I have the honor and the privilege and the obligation to do that for and with other people, right? Regardless, again, of the outcome, just because it is, it is um, in and of itself inherently meaningful. Within some Buddhist traditions, they talk about like a, this idea that one moment of actual clarity is enough to sustain you for a thousand lifetimes. When we're doing our work with people in wild spaces, we talk about how the process of returning to some of these deeper ways of being human and being connected with the natural world, it really can can feel and be more like a process of remembering. I think people are really surprised at how quickly they can actually kind of tap into this other way of being that's not so analytical and like people will come to our workshops or our programs and just be like I'm so disconnected like I don't know anything about nature you know teach me like and what I feel like I see is like people just kind of so quickly become adept and one of the one of the kind of like tools or pathways that we find really useful are connecting people to their senses because it kind of takes them out of the mental space a little bit. So, you know, in the right in the beginning of a workshop, you know, let's say we're on a the beginning of a trail, we may introduce a plant um, that has a really strong fragrance and, you know, we and we know all about it. We know the the medicinal and ecological and ethnobotanical, you know, backstory of this plant, but we'll first kind of invite people to connect and drop in with their own somatic intake of the, a plant through, mm. you know, smell or maybe through taste. And we'll ask them, like, what do you notice? What do you experience? And it's so crazy how often people will actually be able to sort of somatically identify, like, that med- you know, kind of medicinal association of a plant. Like there's things that are happening in our animal bodies that like we may live our entire lives in urban landscapes. I mean, I myself, like I grew up in urban and suburban landscapes. I was not very connected to nature. Like I said, when I first came to Esalen, I couldn't, I couldn't tell the difference between like a kale and a lettuce plant. I mean, it was really like very beginner level. So it can be this incredibly deep process of researching and reading like field guides and talking to elders and, you know, learning all about the land and the the beings who dwell here. But like I said, there's there also is this simplicity of just kind of like just walking in my human animal body and connecting with my senses and feeling my breath that like magical things can start to happen. Returning to this idea of a worldview and shifting consciousness, I feel like I understand that wild tender has a very intentional relationship to language. And I'd love to hear you speak a little bit about the ways that language and the way that we interact with it can sort of influence the way that we work with the world and see the world. Yeah, absolutely. We are not alone in arriving at this conclusion mm, at all. Right. Um, and 
but we have arrived at it, you know, and it, it is like seated very centrally in, in my own personal practice and also in, in my role within Wild Tinder. It's just this belief that the way that I speak about the world deeply informs the way that I see and relate with the world. My world speaking is my world shaping and that language is powerful my thoughts follow my words and my words follow my thoughts and they're always in this reciprocal dance you know and so i've taken it very seriously to really try to garden my language i choose my words wisely as wisely as i can throughout my life but specifically within these practices i'm practicing this kind of language gardening of choosing how to refer to other than human beings. I mean, even that word that I'm using right now, other than human being, is not particularly common in modern parlance, you know, but it's it's specific because I'm acknowledging beinghood and I'm also acknowledging that beinghood extends beyond humans, right? Mm -hmm. I think where this shows up most in our work is often really in pronouns. So commonly somebody would refer to, uh, you know, a redwood tree as it that's what comes up for most people that's what we've been conditioned into is this idea that anything that isn't a person is is an it right so that's and that's a that's objectification like it is a word we use for objects but he she and they those are words we use for persons mm. right and um so what what pronoun might you use for redwood yeah so i i try i try to i default mostly to they because i don't want to superimpose some human construct of binary gender on a redwood tree mm -hmm. i mean you know some some beings have sex you know they have their you know male and female hawks you know <laughs> for example like a red-tailed hawk i could tell the difference between a male red-tailed mm -hmm. hawk and a female red-tailed mm -hmm. hawk and i might use he or she then but also i mean i honestly i don't know what their conceit of their gender is so that in some ways I'm identifying their sex, but that doesn't actually really overlay into identity, right? But I may use he or she then, I may use he or she just as a way of drawing people's attention to the fact that I'm, you know, referring to poison oak as he, like, be, you know, be careful, you know, you might get some of his oils on your boots, you know, just as a way, not because I believe poison oak is inherently male, but it just draws attention to that, right? Again, they is a great one because I'm, um, for instance, there's fungi that have 75 different <laughs> sexes, you know? So it's like, <laughs> what am I, I'm going to really, I'm really reducing them by calling them he or she. Mm. You know, this is a, this is a, this specifically, this he, she, they idea or way of, of communicating came up for me when I was a gardening teacher. I worked at our local elementary school. I ran a gardening program there for about four or five years. And I was working with little kids. And it's something I started to do with the kids as a way of drawing their attention into the, the agency, the aliveness, the awareness, the beinghood of these plants that we were working with. And they could adopt it right away. For one thing, kids are being are used to being corrected all the time about the way they talk about stuff, right? But grown-ups aren't. And then wonderfully, um, you know, within, you know, like a year of just sort of coming to that practice on my own, I, I um, encountered it uh, very beautifully expressed in Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, The Braiding Sweetgrass. She, she has a whole chapter devoted to what she refers to as uh, 
language of animacy or grammar grammar of animacy mm -hmm. she says yeah so again beyond pronouns though it's like if i were to take someone on a hike and they encounter you know we're smelling hedge nettle they're gonna say what is it you know yeah right but we, instead little subtle shift to the left who is this right mm. right and yeah and this is it's it's just change i'm just changing one word there but i'm in that word there is this whole possibility of relationality that is absolutely absent from what, mm. right? And so it affects the way I'm going to relate. And it also is, you know, about mutual regard and respect and just, you know, why should I, you know, why should I be depriving this creek of potential beinghood by saying, you know, what's this creek called, you know? Right. Right. Instead, like, um, does anyone know who this is, you know? I love, I, love, I love that. Yeah. Do you get funny looks from some of your people? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, oftentimes, I would say more often it goes under the radar than it than it gets like a quizzical look, you know, and then but typically way we I like to work, we like to work is um, just do it like, you know, it's the water that I'm swimming in it's the words that I am yeah. potentially using anyway so I'm gonna do it no matter what do it for a couple of days and then you know day two or three ask anybody what they've noticed like have you noticed uh, is there anything you've noticed about the way that I speak about these other than humans you know about our plant kin have you noticed anything you know and then people say you know people will notice and then a lot of people will just get it inherent, you know, intuitively, and then other people will have questions about it. And then we invite people just to try it on. Like, if we're leading a, you know, workshop here for a week at the Esalen Institute, it's like, just try it out, see what it's like. What does it feel like? Yeah, and I think it's just important to clarify, it's not that we necessarily believe that this is the thing. Like, if we change the way that we talk, this is going to be the game-changing thing that, you know, this is going to repair the way that we relate to the world and everything's going to be magically better. It's kind of like, this is just one type of way to sort of untangle mm. some of our conditioning. And I think all languages have epistemologies embedded in them, right? And there are different ways of being kind of embedded in these ways of talking. So yeah, just changing our way of talking a little bit helps us try something different in, in like an existential way. Let's talk about Wild Pilgrimage, this program that you'll be leading at Esalen. When will it be happening? And uh, tell me about the program, please. It's April 29th to May 5th, and we should say that sometimes Fletcher and I co-lead programs. This one, Fletcher, will be co-leading with a wonderful friend and wild tender guide, Emily Linders, who is a really interesting person who we met uh, after she hiked the opposite direction from having been a, she was a, a monk and resident at the time at the Tassajara Zen Center and hiked all the way to Esalen. Wild Pilgrimage is a multi-day, highly intentional backpacking journey through the Big Sur wilderness. We begin on the coast and we make a loop through the wilderness, spending uh, four nights camped out, learning about and from the land, learning about and from 
one another. Mm. Different practices that we've inherited and created within the, specifically within the Gestalt tradition, which we see as like one of the great lineages of the Esalen Institute, you know, using the Gestalt tradition as to build relationship with the more than human, with the other than human, and with oneself and with this temporary community of of beings, this circle, you know, of, of human people. And then it concludes with a, a weekend here at the Esalen Institute of integration and uh, rest and mm. expansion. Mm. And um, it's this beautiful opportunity to just radically uh, simplify, you know, to we're carrying, everyone's carrying the, everything that they need for those five days in the wilderness, those four nights, five days. You know, every, any, anything you need, it's is on your back and if you didn't it's not on your back you're it's not you're not going to use it you know for a few days and just to to spend all day all the daylight hours walking through the wild with lots of space and quietude and just being in the practice of just being with this this world as it is you know full of of life and awareness and beauty pilgrimage is an ancient pan-cultural tradition. Um, I think probably every part of the world has pilgrimages. You know, often they're pilgrimages to sacred or religious sites. Um, They have destinations. Often they are moving through wild spaces regardless. And sometimes the wild space is in and of itself the spiritual destination. But yeah, we use this term at the risk of maybe seeming pretentious or overly serious because we want to, yeah, we want to endow it with a lot of intention and meaning and and have these uh, journeys that we are undertaking be serious, like that people realize that it's not, this isn't a guided interpretive backpacking trip. You know, you, if you want that, there's plenty of places to to find that. We are really approaching it with a more intentional spirit and yeah we've just found that the the combination of the the physical ardor and the the challenge of of hiking all day long and kind of wearing our bodies out and moving through rugged landscape and passing brush and you know feeling the sun beating on me all day and the weight of my pack that combined with you know, everyday walking with a level of intentionality and silence and space and reverence, awe and wonder, you know, that plus that plus the the communitarian aspect of being with an intimate group that is walking together um, and, you know, coming together at points like, you know, at the end of the day at camp to tell the stories of the day and to to share what's arising. That whole combination we have just found to be incredibly powerful. And we choose to call these pilgrimages because we are part of this Esalen Gestalt wilderness tradition that Stephen Harper and Dick Price you know, began. And uh, Stephen Harper himself led pilgrimages to and from Esalen and to and from the Tassajara Zen Center. and. But yeah, it's a we consider this like a contemporary pan-cultural approach to pilgrimage and to sanctifying wild space together. You know, Noel was saying, you know, pilgrimage is this like sacred pan-ancestral practice 
retreat is another word for another concept that's also exists across countless cultures and all these different modalities and just this idea of intentionally taking time away from your your individual demands of daily existence setting it aside making sacred time to do a different kind of work to do inner work to be present for yourself and for the place and for each other in, in a way that is, is just difficult or impossible in daily life and one of the components of traditional pilgrimage that i think sometimes gets overlooked or forgotten about now when we think about it um is the idea of like bringing back the boon to one's community mm -hmm. so if you think about it, like in a in a village maybe hundreds of years ago someone might undertake a pilgrimage on behalf of the whole village and be expected to bring back those spiritual fruits or to you know to make offerings on behalf of the whole community and you know that that wouldn't just be a treasured personal precious experience but that would be something to be shared and mm. so we really walk with that intention of like yes let, let, let's nourish ourselves through this way of being immersed on the land and in a very thoughtful community for five days and as we turn toward the weekend and of at Esalen Institute and thinking about integration, that starts to come into play a little bit too. Of like, well, what does this mean for me? What what am I taking back into my life, and how how am I changed? I mean, and a lot of times people do feel changed. Like there's big implications once they let themselves kind of connect in this way. Mm. Related to what you were saying, Noel, about the the idea of like making these offerings on behalf of the community and and it having like value that extends beyond one's personal experience, and I think that for me that brings up some just some thoughts about the way that we're entering into pilgrimage or into any of these practices of attempting to sense into, embody, and express kinship, and that having like this larger larger value beyond personal experience and potentially and truthfully from my perspective, my own lived experience, it having having value for our kin as well and having meaning that extends beyond my own meaning making. It brings to mind this experience that I had of when we, when we first moved to uh, into the larger Big Sur community uh, after we were had finished living in at um, Esalen Institute, then discovering nearby this beautiful matriarch of a of a coast live oak tree that was just making these enormous, glorious acorns that were just so beautiful, and us organizing a a little g gathering of friends to to come and and collect acorns and process them into some food, and I had this feeling when we were with this oak tree when we were all gathering the acorns you know this oak tree who was certainly old enough to have been tended to and had interactions with tribal people with Esalen folks and this feeling from the oak tree of like if I were to put it into words it would be like a almost like a statement of like where have you been and it was like it had a quality of there was like a quality of sadness. There was a quality of almost like a scolding quality to it as well. It wasn't like a 
wasn't just like, a, I'm so happy to see you. It was like a, there was a heaviness to it. It's like, where have you been? Yes. Right? That may have been in my imagination. That may have been dialogue. I don't, I don't know. I don't feel particularly attached to it being one way or the other, but, but it has meaning. It has meaning for me, regardless of what it actually was. And the meaning is nested in that meaning is this idea of like, maybe these, maybe our kinfolk, maybe these other beings miss us too, you know, not because we're super special or great, but just because we're like one of the we're just one member of the family that's been missing for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so like when we step into the wild in, in pilgrimage or in, you know, in some other form of ceremony or intentionality in one of our programs or in, in some other way, there's this possibility of this joyful reunion and this very meaningful reunion that's benefiting me as an individual, but it's hopefully, and the intention is, and for me, it feels just, true so i'm just going to say it is 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 like acknowledged and and understood and has value and healing capacity for for the landscape and for the other other than human subjectivities of the land and so in that way it's like it extends beyond just some extractionistic like experience of like oh i get to have a cool trip or a cool experience or i feel better afterwards and ideally grounds it back into like reciprocity relationship you know thank you so much for this deep dive into your your world and your ways of thinking i feel like my own thoughts about existing in the world have been shifted and mm. i feel like my curiosity has been piqued and i feel like there is like i have my tool kit is a little larger for having sort of been expanded to the the thoughts that guide your work so really want to express deep gratitude for the the rigorousness and the depth of exploration that you two are, have done and continue to do. And I'd love to have you back on the show sometime. <laughs> I feel like we could talk, you know, way more. I could talk for hours. There's more. I know. Would you mind telling me how people can find out more about the work that you do? Sure. Yeah. And Sam, I just want to say I'm so honored to be on this podcast. I listen to it. I recommend it. Like we put it on our wild tender recommendations list. I just think that you are doing such important work of holding the, the history and the legacies of Esalen and also bringing in these newer voices. And yeah, I just think that the podcast is really dynamic and wonderful and I appreciate your work at Esalen. So thank you so much for giving us this opportunity to be in dialogue with you. And yeah, in terms of our work, we, yeah, in addition to leading programs at the Esalen Institute, we also lead just wild tender programs, some backcountry journeys and pilgrimages and some front country day hiking and shorter form like camping retreats, um, all based in the outdoors. So our website is wildtender.com, like tending the wild, wildtender.com. Yeah, please. I, if people are curious, I encourage you to just reach out and um, you know find our email on the website and we, we'd love to be in touch so thank you 
Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Shira Levine. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. Want to write to me? Tell me how the show has changed your life. Tell me who you think I should interview. Email us at voicesofesalyn at gmail.com. I will answer you, I promise. And while you're at it, please take a moment to rate and review this show on whatever podcast player you're listening to. That would be a kind move on your part. <laughs>